Um, so really, Jean Seaton, uh, Professor of Media History, University of Westminster, who has a book coming out January, is it, Jean? Which is mostly about, what, the 70s and the 80s at the BBC, but that sounds as, as good a period as any. And Jean's been asked to look and, and reflect on um, how the cultural value of the, of the world service may have changed over time. So, Jean, you can either speak from here or from the desk, whichever you prefer. Okay. Uh, can, I do, can I do it from here? Can you hear me? No, you want me to go there? No, you can do it. No, I'll, just, no, I'll bring the mic back. So can you? Okay. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to say just thank you very much to Peter, um, to, who exemplified one theme one might have, that the BBC always has a cyclical history with terminal possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's just on the... He, he, I think, very gave a very eloquent and hopeful account of an institution that uh, we value and of the way in which it's being reinterpreted, as the BBC has to always... Re- reinterpret the values and I want to talk very briefly um, about what those values might be it seems to me that the world service as it were uh, was the first uh, was the first what you might call globalised but they didn't use that word they used internationalised example of the national self-interest being put out by values not by theory and the values are the, are the things that we have to, I think, go back for, back to. Of course, the BBC still has an extraordinary legacy, which has amended and shaped it as an institution, um, as well as giving it a legacy amongst audiences, even amongst very young audiences. I think there remains um, a... a, 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 a a, a tincture, a colour of that history, and that history um, was the product both of the BBC's times, it lived through the Second World War, it was reinterpreted for the, uh, the Cold War um, and after, but also of the BBC meeting those times, those very peculiar, extreme conditions out of its already established values. John Tusa once uh, said to Alban and I when we went to interview him uh, that one of the reasons that the World Service survived was because it had the mothership of values of the BBC to, as it were, depend on, rest on, both the values in one, one sense also the, the size of the institution made it bigger. And I want to suggest that, mixing metaphors, not that... Uh, the World Service, if you think of that, has often been the pilot ship of BBC News Values. It's gone out, or actually it's the explorer, really. It takes you safe in and it takes you right out because its, its values have been based on a particular interpretation of an absolutely key, the most vital BBC value that there is, which I wish I could find a more eloquent word. One is always... One always gets sort of corralled into sort of, I don't know, you know, report speak. But the absolutely vital, the most central BBC value, it seems to me, is let's call it something like diversity. Let's call it something like pulling the range of values. And it's that that goes across the entire plane. The BBC, Google does a search engine by basically being a ratings agency. It finds out what everybody wants to do or everybody's looking at and it rates them and it takes you to it. The BBC has been there because of 
wreath initially to take you to things that aren't necessarily the most popular. But, um, and that is, is a very broad value. It's there to take you to the audiences that don't have the most commercial clout. It's there to take you to the audiences that do not have the most power. It's there to give a voice to those audiences and those interests. It's there to take you to uh, modern music uh, on Radio 3, not just the bits of music you want to listen to, uh, usually. It's there to uh, take the British national taste to other places. It was there to take you very early on to Pinter. It's all the same value. The very high art value and the addressing trying to find ways of addressing uh, uh, perhaps the imagined but the the single parent mother uh, with a child who isn't absolutely sure how to produce key stages in in play school in the 70s is the same value. It's that same single value. It's pulling the values. And that is what has been at the centre of uh, world service news values. And as long as as it were that it, it goes on doing that, it will do it. The World Service's particular interpretation of that particularity, that vivid apprehension of that which is not necessarily powerful, of that which is important but not properly addressed, which is part of news values, the, the World Service particular uh, uh, version of that has added that it um, has been sensitive to, has been... Um, absolutely focused on uh, how people in different places from us understand themselves. That it's no good talking to them in words that please us about value about things that please us with our interpretation because they won't listen to you. Uh-huh. What you have to do is nuance and listen to them. And understand the filibrations, the, 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 the little tiny antennae that tell you how they see the world. And the World Service's role has been to pay real attention uh, in a kind of Orwell kind of way, with no, no impediments, no niceties, no impediments, quite bleak. How do they see the world and how can we then understand that? And that has been the very particular thing that the World Service, I think, has brought out of those main values. And I suppose one's anxiety, completely allayed by Peter's magnificent, and I think actually rather moving story of the reinvention of the World Service, which has gone through terrible times before. Don't forget that. This isn't the first time. Terrible times comes back up. Um, If it goes on doing that... Um, then it will keep very true to those values. And I suppose one's... I think the last thing I'd say is that that sensitivity to the other is part of the national thinking kit. We always think of the world service somehow, and it's often described as something that is taken out, which is a lovely, generous, philanthropic notion. I mean, it wouldn't have been... You know, it, it goes out. Actually, the other bit of its value, which I think the butterfly, caught a little bit of, was that it also brings back to us a much more nuanced understanding of the culture and driving rationality of people in other places that 
cruder views of other places often ignore. Sorry, I'm sure I went on. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Um, let me put one question to you as a way of opening up to the panel. I mean, looking back historically, if there has been, if you like, a consistency about the role of the World Service, do you think governments, I mean, your history, I think, will inevitably is, is much of it is about relationship between the BBC and the government of the day. Have governments understood the role of the World Service or do they understand the role of the World Service? And I'm going to ask Ian, who's worked in the Foreign Office, to come in after that. After you. Um, I'm sure uh, governments, there is no such thing as governments. There are particular mm. governments with particular s civil servants with particular sets of values. Um, this is all uh, arbitrary. I, uh, 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 I don't think I can answer that. I think it is very particular. Mm. And at any moment, there might be a terrible configuration of the stars in which you've got a lousy minister and a lousy set of c civil servants. Mm. And then you, the BBC would have to work very, very, very hard indeed. Ian, I mean, again, a journalist by background, senior figure in BBC News, uh, amongst other things, editor of The Independent, but also working inside the Foreign Office on strategic communications. Do you think ministers, civil servants, have the same vision of, of the world service as perhaps most people in this room would have or not? I think some do and some don't. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think uh, when Lord Patton said, I thought rather early on in the game about yeah. this, that... Uh, yeah. <laughs> that uh, uh, the BBC would be better looked after by uh, the BBC uh, than by the Foreign Office. I think he was probably right. But I don't think that from that one should, even from that comment, one should deduce uh, a negative attitude towards the World, uh, the World Service in the Foreign Office. That certainly wasn't true when I was there. But it was true when I was there that the Foreign Office was under pressure to cut its own budgets. Uh, and uh, if you're in a position where you're making a decision between uh, this uh, consulate or this embassy or this piece of work or that priority, there are too many other competing things. So I think I agree with Peter. Uh, this New Deal uh, is better. Uh, uh, it's not risk-free, but it's better because it is more BBC-centred and more independent. Very, very good to hear Ian say that. Uh, and I worked in the Foreign Office for about seven or eight years as an advisor to two consecutive Labour Foreign Secretaries, Robin Cook and then... Uh, uh, and then Jack Straw. I think both of them, but especially Robin, uh, attach great importance to the World Service. You'll recall that when he was Foreign Secretary, it was a time of uh, the Kosovo War, a uh, time also of uh, the crisis in Sierra Leone uh, and of uh, East Timor. And he was particularly keen to see that uh, World Service English, but, but also the respective... Um, uh, language services, uh, Serbian, Indonesian, uh, 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 paid great attention, close attention to the, the, the great events of the day. I would agree with Ian, the view of officials, I think, is frankly more mixed, uh, because, of course, this was part of um, uh, Foreign Office budget, so, uh, in my experience, almost without exception, even those who were World Service loyalists, as it were, uh, if it was at the cost of the embassy in Vientiane, then forget it. Yeah. Uh, that would come before uh, World Service. Indeed, at the end of the uh, spending review, there was on the Foreign Office website, in the public domain, a sort of sta a statement pretty much said, aren't we smart We've shifted the World Service funding to the BBC and our cuts are less than anybody else's, yeah. which I kind of yeah, was wondering about. That. 
but, but thank you, Mike. Can I just open up so questions then to Jean on anything that was covered in her piece or this specific issue, lessons of history in terms of, of, of governments and the World Service? Anyone want to raise a point on that? John Chusa, could I just say, have, I mean, as a man who was presumably involved in a discussion or two with, with governments, uh, any, any comment you'd like to offer on the lessons of history? Sorry, don't, don't want to depict Bill you as... Barnett, the former yeah. uh, vice chairman of the BBC governors, uh, always said uh, what Ian and Michael have said, that if it is a question of funding new curtains in the embassy somewhere or other, or funding a bit more for the World Service, it would always be the new curtains. I mean, he did this to get a rise out of the Foreign Office, which he regularly did. Mm -hmm. I think in my, my experience... Um, Ambassadors on post, they, uh, they would uh, get complaints from particular heads of state and heads of government. And um, the ambassador, uh, the clever one, said, Mr. President, I couldn't agree with you more. I cannot tell you what a pain these BBC people are. It really is awful. Of course I will tell them that you know, they shouldn't be broadcasting like this. And then, so he got out or she got out scot-free, and then nobody paid any attention. And I think that most of the Foreign Office, most of the time, play this rather elegant game of saying to the country concerned, they are terrible people, these journalists. We just can't control them. Do you know, they're independent, <laughs> but we'll do what we can. And then saying, come on, carry on. Malcolm Rifkin once said that when he went round Africa, every head of state said, you know, the things the World Service broadcasts about my country are awful, but everything they broadcast about every other country is absolutely <laughs> accurate. So. Thank you so much, John. We should move on now to, to, the, to a wider view from other parts of the world. Uh, Rita Payne's from the Commonwealth Journalists Association. Rita, would you like to give us a, a different perspective on, on the World Service's cultural value? Yes. Uh, shall I, do you mind if I sit down because I'm wedded to this? <laughs> and if I stand up, I'll be looking down all the time. Well, we're talking about the value of the World Service. You might be amused to know that I left the BBC in 2008, but wherever I go, I'm still attacked, criticised, or even praised uh, for things that the BBC's done, and I've sort of more or less given up protesting. Now, yesterday evening, I had a meeting with a senior, I'd be very careful, Nigerian official, and I think I was bribed because uh, there were, he and his acolytes had said, well, we feel that our part of Nigeria is being ignored, and if you were able to get us more coverage and recognition on the BBC and to the CJA, there might be some benefits for you. We would like to share what our country has with you. So um, that was uh, quite amusing, and I thanked him for being kind, and he is, well... That's where we are. And, um, and then I spoke to Elizabeth Blunt, who was the former correspondent, and who knew some of these people. And I said, Elizabeth, this seemed, I'm not sure, but it seemed like a bribe somewhere there. She said, she said be careful. She said, everything is brown envelopes. Journalists get these brown envelopes with cash to say nice things about governments. And I think that is happening more and more, which is why I think there's a greater need for the BBC World Service. Now, if I could just start with a few couple of comments. First, I feel that really we have in this room people who are passionate about the World Service. And it's really, in a way, preaching to the converted. The people we need in this room, the people who need to see the report that the Open, Open University has produced, are Daily Mail readers. <laughs> you should have had the Daily Mail here. It's that, how do you get the message out 
to people who seem to be less and less interested in international news. Yes, there is, when there's Ukraine, they want to know a little bit, then they move on, the missing Malaysian airliner, what bit go on. But is there a hunger here to understand and know who the people are, what are the personalities, what are the other issues? Um, and I was you know, talking to Hamid just now about the coverage of Ukraine. You know, how much do people here really know about the Tatars and their role and how, and, you know, how they were moved out of Crimea? Now, what I will say here is that I had a, I will start with a quote from Branshu Chowdhury, who many of you will know. He was a BBC producer, reporter many years ago in the Delhi office. And since then, he has now, um, he's set up a network, a digital network for the Adivasis who are in central India, totally ignored, totally marginalized. These are people who are ignored, who don't have a voice, and that's, they also live in an area where the Maoists are active. And what happens is that Manmohan Singh, the prime minister, had already said that the Maoists pose the biggest threat to India. And here's in this area, 100 million people, they have no voice. Um, the only ones who speak on their behalf are the Maoists, but then the Maoists, you know, would happy to kill and shoot anybody inside who gets in their way. Um, they will come, point a gun at these Adivasis, and if the Adivasis give them food, the police security force came and say, you were supporting them, and they're beaten up there. And this is, so Shu was in London because he was given an index on censorship award for his work amongst the Adivasis. And what Shu said to me, which was very interesting when I met him, and he said, I grew up in a small village which only had one school. The teachers were rubbish. He said, I am completely indebted to the BBC. The World Service had a huge role to play in my life. It shaped me. It was my window to the world, my nation, my library. Now, what bigger testimony, bigger tribute can you get? And how can you put monetary value on that? And that is the BBC in those days. And I identify with that because I grew up in northeast India and Assam. I'm the generation after independence. And my father always had the radio on. He always had the World Service on. And when there were stages in Assam where there were militants, there was trouble, people would only say, well, if it's on the BBC, it must be true. And there was even graffiti saying the BBC says. Now, those days are gone, but... Then when I moved on to television, into television, and what has happened now, there's a blurring, and I think someone mentioned, that between TV and radio. Now what happens if people say, oh, it was on the BBC, they could mean TV as much as they mean radio. But I found that the, the legacy of the BBC World Service, I think the BBC television benefited from that. So in my time when I was uh, with a program, Asia program in BBC World, on BBC World Television. You know, there were instances then when I remember there was a diplomat and he'd been interviewed and I was taking him down to his taxi when the phone rang. It was the Indian Prime Minister's office commenting on his interview. Now, I don't think that happens that much now because I've been speaking... Um, you know, there are other cases, there are other examples, and I'm sure many other colleagues in the room who work with the World Service will have similar stories and examples of how anything that was carried on the program had a huge impact on the politics. You know, one other very brief example, which was quite amusing, was that at one time I had arranged, I thought I would get Benazir Bhutto, Imran Khan, and Nawaz Sharif have the three people being interviewed today. 
So, and then I suddenly saw the day we were going to interview Benazir Bhutto, um, I saw that she was due to meet Nawaz Sharif. So I got a bit worried. So I rang Nawaz Sharif's person. I said, look, we're due to interview Benazir Bhutto, but I see you're interviewing him. They said, well, could you find out from her when you meet her? Because she said she would, she'd be talking to us. So then I rang her. I went there. I said, this is what they're wanting to know. And she said, no, I didn't say I'd meet them today. I said I'd meet them sometime. So I found myself being a go-between between Imran Khan, Nawaz Sharif, and Benazir Bhutto. So those are the days when it really mattered. Now, what is quite interesting is when I knew that I had to prepare for this presentation, sorry, I will be, one moment. When I knew when I had to prepare for this presentation, I asked a lot of people I trust and some of our Commonwealth Journalist Association members and said, look, can you tell me very quickly, how is the BBC World Service rated now? And what do you think it should be doing more of and less of? And so we had one in India who was saying, well, it does enjoy credibility. After a de- gap of two decades and more, people in India are returning to the radio. Um, and, but this is really the older generation. But they said, what happens, there is so much noise now that they want a bit of calm. And they find BBC World Service radio and TV calming. And this is what I discovered myself about a year ago. I was in India, South India, when the bombs went off. And there was total hysterics. There was, um, the presenter was shouting, the reporters were shouting, the people in the panel were shouting, and then they had these Astons going saying, terror stalks the streets of Hyderabad, everything that at the BBC we were trained we should not do. And I remember some journalists telling me that they felt that um, they were trained, if they tried to use or transfer BBC values, that wasn't wanted. They wanted hype, they wanted excitement. So then very quickly with Sri Lanka... There's, and each country has different needs. With Sri Lanka, there's, it was someone was telling me that there's, there's almost a sense of schizophrenia. You know, they call it the biased corporation because you know, if you're one side or the other, each one will think you're anti. Um, so that's very difficult. Um, so that was where we are now. But I feel there's a bit of space opening up. Yeah. And Can I just say, yeah. Risa, for every sure. minute we go over our five okay, minutes, lovely, I, I, I don't get much time for okay, anyone else. Of course. So yeah, is, there anything, is, there, is there a final point you'd like to make? One final sure. point I'd like to make, that I feel now that the space is opening up for the World Service again. Because when I was talking about the early days, there were no competitors. Now there are so many voices that people want something mm. sane, neutral, impartial. Mm. So there is a space for the World Service and BBC World Television to reassert itself. And it's yeah. how is it done? Okay, thank you very much. I, I just want to. I think there's one interesting point yeah. that we haven't talked about before, which is radio and television sitting alongside yeah. each other. Uh, Peter, about ten years ago, I was on a committee which was, I think, was the suggested by the Foreign Office of outsiders who might kind of review how the performance was going, and seeing the trust figures for BBC Radio were much higher than those for BBC. World Service Television, which I partly put down to the fact that more people were seeing it and I thought had a view on it. But how, what is the effect on the brand of actually having uh, you know, the radio service and the television service? I mean, for a time they were separate, but what's the sounds as though you're more and more mixing them together? Is, is, there, is there any downsides to that strategy? I don't think there are appreciable downsides, apart from how difficult and costly it is to be on more platforms than than radio, as I explained earlier, when the cost base is fundamentally still yeah. a radio one, uh, we're, we're, we're platform neutral. It's not about being pro or anti any of those platforms. We use the appropriate platforms to inform our audiences in the best possible way, depending on the consumption patterns in the relevant, in the relevant locations. Mm-hmm. So we're now producing television in, I think... 10 languages, so 10 out of 27 languages. We don't have radio in all of the 27 languages 
that we have that we have services in. So online is the most universal online and online and mobile, but the number of radio and television services in languages is not that far apart. Of course, in English we have radio, television, and digital. You know, equivalently, they work to the same values. They're produced by the same team, sitting right alongside each other. They happen to be funded differently for historical reasons that people in this room uh, know about. But as far as we can, they work as interoperably and equivalently as possible. So we're saying, whatever the historic funding separation, now that you're all in that building, there are opportunities to be taken using technology to make more stuff. Whatever platform is on, this is simple. Yeah. So that so that BBC trending team that I talked about are informed by the journalists from the language services and from BBC monitoring. They're producing content for all of the English services, whether commercial or publicly funded. And that content feeds back into the languages. There's a sort of virtuous circle that we are creating, where the different funding models uh, make life a little bit more difficult. And you know, they keep a few accountants in business, but they, we try not to let that get in the way of the BBC having a unified offer based on a set, single set of editorial values. Okay, can I open that up either to the panel or to anyone else. I, anything that, that Rita raised, or this issue of whether television is is benefiting the brand or distracting from the brand. Anyone want to ask anything about that? Yeah, sure. It's kind of related. I'd like to ask about advertising. Um, I'm, I'm by no means a media expert, so in that context, I'm a layperson in this audience and. I guess one thing the BBC has done to me is make me fairly allergic to media advertising, and um, I'm wondering how far Global News is a Trojan horse in that regard, um, because that's something I feel is very precious. I don't know whether it's a generation thing. I don't know whether we've got evidence that young people have a different attitude to this, um, but I'm struck by the dichotomy between the UK space and the rest of the world, and therefore how far. This is a threat to what I think is a fairly fundamental feature of uh, the BBC in the in the, in the UK context, and how far okay. what's going Can on. Just there? And, and the panel like to respond to that, Jean? I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure you will, uh, Peter. But when the BBC was considering whether it would allow uh, commercial funding on a licence fee service, and that's the really exceptional thing that is happening. It is it is it is surprising how little discussion there's been about that. On your question about whether it's a Trojan horse. It could be, but it doesn't need to be, because if the UK audience still believe in the licence fee, and one of the attributes of the BBC in the UK is its non-commercial nature, and that is sustained, there's no reason why the fact that global audiences have a different view of it uh, should 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 change any of that. Clearly, it provides a test bed for how the BBC could use some commercial income. Uh, it's worth saying that for the World Service. The commercial income at the moment is only around three or four percent. We think it will be extraordinary if it could even get to ten percent. So it's going to be low-level nugatory amounts for the existing world service services. Clearly, for the English services in television and digital, those are a hundred percent funded commercially because they have to be from a, from a legal point of view. But just to, just to sort of crystallise that, so you're saying the, the guideline, if you like, the rule now is it's, it's, you can have advertising on a licence fee funded service, but it shouldn't ex, ex, be receivable in the UK. Yes, so, so people But in a world of global media, world. is that sustainable? I mean, you, well, know, you, I, certainly if you put a certain dish on your roof, you will get No, you could, you, you could. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, when, 
people travel and licence fee payers occasionally do travel <laughs> outside the UK, then they see that the BBC is funded by adverts. So I don't think it's a huge problem if the occasional bit of consumption of BBC Arabic via a website or something like that, someone in the UK sees that a services... Which, so what the, what, the, what the Trust has said is that services uh, on distributions which are targeted at the UK should not contern, contain adverts. That fundamentally means that audio stream of World Service English will not have adverts inserted in it in any uh, consumption method that is targeted at the UK. Seems a good moment to move on to, to Lord Williams fr from the BBC trustee. Uh, I think you, you were asked if you could reflect on, on the public value of the World Service, use public value as opposed to cultural value. I'm not sure there's necessarily any difference, but <laughs> well, how does the World Service now compare with the public value of the domestic service? Another way of looking at it. I still think immensely, but first of all, if I may, Stuart, uh, it's great to be here. I, I wish there was more time for this uh, conversation, but uh, we're, we're under really tight pressures. But it's great to see a number of old colleagues like Kailash Boudoir and uh, Bill Horsley, Baruz in the background, Mike Popham, and uh, above all, John Tusa, former boss, former boss of mine when I was at uh, World Service, and who has always been such a stalwart uh, defender and, dare I say it, occasional critic of... Uh, the, the, the World Service. Uh, thank you for all you've uh, said, John, and uh, we continue to need your support and also all of all of you here in what I see as a context which will be challenging, frankly, uh, in the years to come. Challenging on, on many counts, uh, politically, technologically, uh, and uh, financially. Can we weather all those challenges? I think we can, uh, but it's not going to be uh, straightforward. Uh, I'm struck by the pace in which things happen these days. Uh, it's less than three years since I was sort of interviewed for the post of uh, trustee of the BBC, and in particular responsibility for the international services, as it were, world service and monitoring and uh, global news and so on. Uh, and, and on the trust itself, just uh, two, two and a quarter uh, years. But during that period, we've had this fundamental change uh, after the comprehensive spending review of the transfer of uh, World Service from the Foreign Office budget to the license fee uh, payer. I suspect, like most of you, I, I have mixed feelings about that, frankly. Um, uh, in some ways, it's, 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 it's great not to have that challenge when you're in Serbia or Vietnam or in uh, uh, Syria when you're confronted with government officials who say, yes, but you're a tool of the, the Foreign Office. So that's great that I don't have to face uh, that anymore. But uh, on the licence fee, there will also be uh, issues. Uh, just within the last few weeks, in, in, within the space of three weeks, uh, we've seen, um, in effect, what's being called the decriminalisation of the licence fee. It was only three weeks this week, coming weekend, that... Um, surfaced quickly uh, in the newspapers and now uh, it's already uh, through uh, the House of Commons and of course this will have a big impact for the licence fee and it will have a big impact for the World Service. We cannot deny that. Uh, and we have seen further challenges down the road obviously. Charter renewal uh, what this will mean um, 
and, and the technological challenges. You know, Peter talks about Twitter. I, I can never keep up with uh, all of these things and so on. I mean, for years I, I listened on shortwave in Indonesia or in Sarajevo or in Phnom Penh or wherever the UN uh, sent me. And those were great days. I'll always remember them. And the World Service is absolutely critical for, to, to keeping me informed and even more importantly, uh, the, the populations of the countries where... Uh, I work. That's changed immensely now. Um, you know, I, it saddens me in a way, but you know, short wave listening is declining. And if the World Service is going to fight for its space out there, it has to be on all these other platforms, even if some of them I, 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 uh, I, I don't understand. Uh, I was looking in the train this morning at figures domestically within the UK. Uh, that, that assessment that's done from time to time about which of the media you um, uh, value the most. Uh, you know, there's kind of good news and bad news there. The good news is that the BBC came way ahead of Channel 5, of uh, ITV, of Channel 4. That's the good news. The slightly less good news is way out ahead was Google. And that tells you a lot, I suspect, um, about the world we're going into. Particularly as that survey, I think, was done on a, a really professional basis, looking at you know gender and, and age structures and so on. Um, and yet, Google still came out on top. And one might say that you know mo most people say over the age of fifty were less likely to be frequent uh, Google users. So that tells us there's a, there's a, there's a warning and a, and a challenge uh, inherent uh, in, in that. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm going to stop there because uh, you Just will have questions. This, this issue has come up before. Certainly when I was at Ofcom we did surveys, we discovered that people, what they meant by Google yes. was a facility to reach different news services. I mean, Google, I don't think, has ever produced any news content of its own. So it's not exactly a rival as a news content creator, but as a content aggregator, it's providing a service which the BBC and others can benefit from. Nor do, nor do you eat your supper to Google. It takes the advertising. That's the controversy. Yeah. Well, thank you, Louise. Can I say that since Lord Williams is just about to become responsible to you, the licence fee payers, <laughs> for the World Service, this is your opportunity. Okay, at the front. Thanks very much. Sally Ann Wilson, um, Secretary General of the uh, CBA. Um, Peter said a lot of very positive things which were heartening to hear in his uh, speech, particularly uh, one thing I noted, the World Service is going to be more central to the BBC from the 1st of April. With your perspective from the Trust, you've outlined there are a lot of challenges ahead. Can you give us a, a trust or a personal view on how... The BBC, how the World Service will be more central if it's not got any representation at a more senior level within the BBC. Because I think that is one of the critical things that worries a lot of us who are very supportive of the way it's going and what's happened in recent months in terms of the integration. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I think you know, World Service is central to, uh, to the BBC and is al already having an enormous impact on uh, the BBC generally. I mean, when I worked uh, uh, as a talks writer, as it was called, in the 1980s in the Bush House, uh, I mean, one often appeared, obviously, on World, World Service, 
you'd never get on domestic uh, radio. Occasionally, and I think it was somehow the influence of uh, John Tuster and his past, you'd get on to Newsnight now and then, uh, and that would be a big sort of thrill, but you'd never get on to other domestic TV outlets or, or uh, domestic radio. That, that has changed completely with World Service being in that uh, building. It was, it was I think the point is... Right. I mean, John Tucer, when you were in charge of Bush House, you were in, a, what, the top table of, say, five BBC executives. Now, Peter, uh, respected as he is within the BBC, has somebody quite above him called BBC Director of News. So, in a sense, the, the position of the person in charge of World Service has been effectively downgraded within the BBC. Is that, I think, the point you're getting yes. to? Yes. So, when, that, when there's an argument about the money... Peter's not exactly at the top table. Who's going to defend the World Service at the top table? Yeah. Well, the director of news is there, of course, which is James Hart. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in James, of course, we were former editor of the, uh, the Times, former foreign correspondent of the FT, who speaks Japanese and German and Chinese. I think he knows a thing about the world, and he knows a thing about uh, World Service. I, I, I think, you know, in the Foreign Affairs Committee, I think, has to some extent fallen into this trap. They, they, to some extent, you're sort of fetishizing a, a, a post. That is not going to be um, uh, guaranteeing the future of the, the World Service. And indeed, you know, budgets and everything else have to be referred to the Trust. And apart from myself, you know, Lord Patton takes something of an interest in uh, this issue. Okay. Um, Paddy Barwise, you wanted to ask a question, I think, and then we'll go over there afterwards. Could we have the microphone... Just to, to gentle at the front. Thank you. Uh, yes, Paddy Barwise from London Business School and which, um, uh, well, a few points. First, I was also very heartened by what you said, Peter. Um, terrific. Um, Google, we shouldn't be too worried about Google. Uh, it's basically different needs, okay? And uh, that sounds like a daft survey, okay? You, 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 different media meet different needs. Uh, if there's any threat, it's an indirect threat through marketing budgets to ITV, um, but actually, TV advertising is held up very robustly anyway. TV viewing is held up very robustly, radio listening to a slightly lesser extent. So uh, it's just apples and oranges. I don't, I don't see Google as, as, as a threat. Um, to me, the, the uh, big issue is resources. And um, I take a rather different view from, I think, the fears which have just been expressed. And, and I'm more, my view is more similar to, to what Lord Williams has said. Uh, my reading of the real politique uh, is that uh, the World Service's share of BBC resources is extremely secure for a number of reasons to do with the trust, uh, to do with the current DG, but actually even Paul Dacre thinks BBC Worldwide, the, the World Service is a good thing. Okay, I, mean, I think cross-party, uh, the World Service is seen as, as you know, the soft power benefits mm. and so on. But, However, yeah. I think that the uh, licence fee is under threat so to me, Peter's task is to give Tony Hall the best ammunition to argue for a proper license fee settlement uh, in the new charter. And um, uh, I have to say that the, the, the people that is aimed at are not sort of DCMS. This is after next May, um, number 10, the Treasury, um, FCO, maybe BIS, then people like DCMS, sort of in that order. In other words, because uh, yeah, DCMS is, is very low on the food chain uh, within Whitehall, 
and you know the muscle is number ten, and and the treasury. Uh, if I come back to the to the Open University framework, I have to say to me, the only important quadrant in that context is the top right quadrant. It's about the audience, and uh, if you can demonstrate both numbers and a rich qualitative story, particularly if you put it in comparison with the resources the Chinese and others are putting in, it seems to me that's a very, very persuasive story, but it's part of uh, the uh, overall BBC story. And uh, the one uh, other thing I'd say is, uh, to me, the Trust got it completely right about advertising outside the UK and not inside the UK. And the reason for that is not uh, because of people, you know, being disturbed by the presence of advertisements on BBC services. It's for a much more... Uh, down-to-earth reason, which, is, uh, which we, we've looked at in the past, uh, what we know is that if the BBC carried advertising, something like 80 to 90% would come from commercial broadcasters, and they're not going to like that. So the idea of advertising uh, you know, within the UK is an absolute political no-no, uh, if only because the, the vested interests against it are extremely powerful. Thank you. Thank you, Paddy. Can I just say, let's take one more point and then offer Law Williams the chance and Peter the chance to respond. So, um, gentlemen there, and then we'll have two responses to this and then move on. Yes, uh, Ian Richardson, ex-World Service Radio, ex-World Service Television, ex-Arabic Television. Um, I'm interested to know what practical considerations have been given to dealing with Cold War II. I mean, let's face it, what have we got in Russia? Uh, the internet. There's no, there are no broadcasts there, I believe. So what preparations are being made for that? And places like Pakistan. If Pakistan were shut down, how would we cover anything? How would the BBC cover anything? Okay, thanks. So I think first of all, opportunity law to talk about this. For instance, if decriminalisation effectively cuts the BBC's revenue... Is the, is the World Service budget safe in those situations? And then these changing circumstances such as Ukraine and, and Pakistan, how are you going to adjust to those? And then, Peter, perhaps to add to that afterwards? I, I think, to be frank, the short answer to both of those questions is with difficulty. Uh, on the question of uh, budgets and so on, uh, the World Service now has a budget like all the services of the BBC on a 12-month basis. Uh, I mean, James Harding and I came under repeated questioning from the FAC in the, in, uh, the House uh, the other day, Monday, I think it was, uh, on, on this question. And I had to get over the time and time again that the World Service now is like, in this, to this extent, to this extent, uh, the same as any other service uh, in the BBC. And I couldn't possibly argue, you know, in the, in, within the, uh, the BBC, as it were, that World Service must be treated separately and somehow get a three-year budget. That's not going to happen. Uh, it, it was possible under foreign office funding, uh, but that's not, not where we are any longer politically, and there's no going back there. So uh, please be uh, aware of that. Um, no, sorry, sorry, what was your second? These kind of changing circumstances, though, what about services ah. to Russia? What about services to other places where you may have closed down services and suddenly the, you know, the world is interested in them again? Well, I'm gonna, I may defer to Peter on how uh, Russia is affecting us, but, but uh, look, I just came from a discussion uh, at Chatham House on uh, Syria, and 
uh, I was impressed time and time again by Arab colleagues and friends uh, uh, citing the BBC Arabic service in particular, you know, on radio and on uh, television, and how uh, imperative that was for people of Syria and the region. Maybe a slightly strange thing to say, but I'm slightly worried about how reassured Jean is and how heartened Paddy is. I didn't intend to have quite such a, a positive effect. I hope that if you're positive about what's happening, it's about the kind of the current ethos and performance of the World Service. I think there are big. I think there are big questions about the future, and Lord Williams touched on on, on some of them. Um, I think the Foreign Affairs Committee has has fastened on a particular kind of question of governance responsibility because it's an easy thing to get your head round. But actually, the thing that hasn't been worked out by the BBC, because of the circumstances of the, the licence fee deal that was you know, done, in the, done, in the, done in a kind of darkened room over a weekend, is what is the basis for allocating resource differentially between UK services and global services, and also what would the, be the theoretical basis for the level of investment that you would want to have for a UK-funded global service which could you know, clearly be an infinite, an, an, an infinite resource requirement. And that's, a, that's, that's only a kind, of, um, a kind of abstract question at the moment because what happened is that the money you know, the Foreign Office was giving us, someone sort of said, well, it needs to be kind of roughly about £5 million more than that in order that we can credibly say that we're funding it better. I'm just being honest about how it kind of came about. No one kind of worked out what was the right amount of money that the World Service would need. And that doesn't matter at the moment because the funding is pretty reasonable. There's some questions about how much it goes up over the, next, over the next few years. But surely, when the BBC is making a strong case, which I agree with Paddy, you know, there is a political opportunity to make it there, but there's pressure on the, the wider licence fee and the argument for the licence fee, the BBC is going to need to be clear about what's the basis of either the level or the proportion potentially, potentially of the licence fee that goes into the World Service, or if it sticks with a kind of, you know, it's all one sum, then its degree of belief in the global role that's publicly funded will be less, 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 less clear-cut than it might need to be to have the political effect um, that, the BBC, that, the, that the BBC wants. Um, the, the, consequences, the consequence of the intellectual basis of the resource allocation not being clear then feeds through into the operational concern which the Foreign Affairs Committee has had, which is that it's not that, the, that integration isn't going to happen. Clearly integration is already happening, it needs to happen. But it's the degree of integration and how operationally through editorial decisions and resource allocation decisions within a unified news group, what is the basis of the decision as well as who is taking that decision? And those are things which those of us who are you know, in the, in the, in dealing with this at the moment, we still haven't got as much clarity as we, as, as we might do. I think we'll get through it fine because, as, 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 as Michael says, about the, kind of the belief in the value of the World Service that James Harding in particular has got. But that, those are the real questions that haven't been answered in terms of the long-term future of the World Service. Can we just briefly answer this licence fee payer worrying about Russia? Sorry, yes, 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 Ian. Um, well, in Russia, uh, we do have, still have some broadcasts, but they are, have been squeezed. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Gibson, who's behind you, can, you know, former head of the Russian service, can tell you more. But the internet is not currently being blocked. I think if it were to happen in Russia, you'd probably see what's happened in Turkey, which is kind of workarounds. Pakistan does still have shortwave broadcasting, and as things stand at the moment, if shortwave, sorry, if, if other kinds of uh, broadcasting were impossible, shortwave is still, is still getting through. Um, internet penetration isn't sufficient that if 
any lo any local rebroadcasting was stopped. Uh, we'd just be relying, re relying on relying on shortwave. So you know we're still it's, it's Turkey. We, we know Turkey. We withdrew from last year, went digital only, and as we've seen in the last week, you know the audiences are finding ways of getting getting to our content. Okay, Ian, you've been very patient and you trailed your uh, contribution. Would you like to talk to us for five minutes about your uh, perspective? Yeah, I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it tight. I'll, I'll just make one, uh, uh, albeit very large, point, uh, um, which is that whilst uh, I uh, have been happy to agree uh, that, uh, uh, that the World Services funding uh, will be well looked after by the BBC Trust uh, on grounds of independence, um, I think there is another much less discussed point, which is that, um, which favours uh, the same conclusion about uh, a licence fee base rather than an FCO funding base, which is that uh, the trust itself has got a lot more levers uh, uh, which would enable it to shape uh, the world service uh, uh, if, uh, if it were to acquire the ambition uh, so to do. Uh, and the most important lever is this. Um, today people who want to make use of BBC News or any other BBC content can in theory access it wherever they are in the world the internet makes that possible uh, subject uh, of course to people having the technology and the bandwidth for access which is a major but still a secondary issue from a strategic point of view because this access threshold only ever moves in one direction so Strategically, the BBC, in my view, must see itself as a globally accessible digital platform through which people all over the world can enjoy current BBC content, radio, television, text, hybrid, along with the corporation's vast and vastly underexploited archive. This content can be available uh, uh, supported by automated translation into the world's languages. Um, and in pursuing this mission, the BBC therefore needs to understand that it is critical uh, to the future of the UK's place in global communications that it is a primary and solid supporter of the open internet, um, perhaps even uh, a friend of uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, uh, a very recent proposal for a Magna Carta for the web, uh, and it therefore needs to be opposed to some things, the BBC that is. It needs to be opposed to the wrong kind of geo-blocking, uh, the wrong kind of restriction to access, the wrong way of interpreting intellectual property. Uh, but it, it, it is caught in a difficult position because these ambitions, were the BBC to adopt them, conflict with the BBC's pursuit of commercial revenue. Uh, now, I'm not opposed to the BBC pursuing commercial revenue, but this, uh, the balance between the priority of being an open and accessible digital platform uh, will require the BBC uh, to make some choices, because in the digital age, the BBC World Service is the whole of the BBC which is at the service of the world. Um, uh, that, uh, I'll leave it there. Well, that's a really, that is a big thought. Uh, specifically, what has, to, I mean, the whole, uh, and we should explain that uh, uh, Ian's been an advisor to the government on intellectual property rights. 
So is your view that the BBC, the, the BBC worldwide, with its wish to preserve rights to itself for commercial benefit, would stand in the way of your vision? Is that what you're getting at? Uh, I think that the BBC needs to work out uh, how it is going to play that uh, in a global open access world. Uh, by the way, so does the Open University. Uh, uh, these are two, the, the, uh, the, uh, the BBC and the, world, uh, uh, and, uh, the Open University, are, we, we have been hopeless anywhere in Europe uh, at creating internet platforms of the truly of the internet age. Google is one. Uh, we haven't created any of those. We've created some video games companies uh, and we have got... Uh, the magnificent possibility uh, of the Open University and the BBC. This is how we have the opportunity to play in this global space. But it means that uh, we have to be prepared to commit ourselves. It's a wider political commitment as well as just the BBC. But the BBC, uh, 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 it seems to me that the values of the BBC World Service, which speak to informing, educating and entertaining the world in an in idiom uh, that the world uh, can uh, respond to, uh, uh, connect to, feel strongly about. Uh, that opportunity seems to me to be there. It required uh, the integration. I mean, what's happened uh, uh, in terms of the integration of the World Service that Peter is so ably leading at the moment versus what it was like when I worked at the BBC in the late 1980s where uh, you, uh, if you suggested uh, inviting a World Service yeah. person on, uh, on uh, mainstream or the home radio or television service, you were regarded as a nutcase. Um, so, uh, uh, but we're, we're getting through all of that, but this is the bigger game that we're getting through too. And I don't think that the BBC Trust has got that yet. I don't think that the Director General has got it, and I don't think that the Chairman of the Trust has got it yet. Okay, well, can I suggest to finish off, we might go along the panel and, and respond to that alternative viewpoint, uh, that alternative vision for the World Service. So in a sense, as you say, in a more integrated, in a sense, everything comes together, but one which cannot actually happen unless some commercial revenues are foregone. Yes, so I mean, it also requires the, the BBC, the integrated BBC, to be, to use the word that was used in the research, very cosmopolitan. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jean, what's your, what's your I, response? I, I, mean, I, I just go back to my starting point, which is that there is not enough discussion of the national interest, and it's in the national interest for the BBC to make some of those choices. It's our only, um, it's the only British website on the top 100. It's one of the, yeah, yeah. It's one of the fourth, it's, it's the fourth, it's one of the four big news providers in the world. It's our, if you go round as I just have actually, um, various cultural industry, whatever, we do actually don't have any cultural industries because we've sold them to other people. Um, it, it is an absolutely key bit of, our national interest kit, it's in the national interest, we have to be able to have an argument, and I think this is an argument that is that goes back to what the kind of argument we need to have over the next 18 months, absolutely about the value of the licence fee, uh, because without that, and at the moment everything I think is on the back foot over that, I mean if you want to give orange juice to poor kiddies you think you t might take some money away from the BBC and give it to poor kiddies I mean it's, it's a sort of it, it, it's, it, it's so rolling back from that to a proper discussion of the national interest and the BBC's role in it 
mm. is one of the things that would enable the BBC to get that next argument about intellectual property rights. It's very difficult to do, make so bold a movement when you feel very much on the back foot. Yeah. So I think, in as far as I was Pollyanna-ish, um, and on, the whole, you, on the whole, I'm usually a Cassandra, actually, um, but I, th- I think that we've just got to move up the agenda of politics because it's in the national interest that we do too. Okay. Rita, would such a service be welcomed in the parts of the world you're familiar with? I guess it would, wouldn't it? Well, I just think we're assuming that everyone has access to internet. Now, when you think of the power shortages, when you think of how much people are suffering, and when when I was in Africa, I was amazed that local (coughs) African journalists couldn't afford to come to a press (coughs) conference because they, they they didn't get any pay. So unless they got lunch or tea. So these people don't have access to laptops, maybe mobile phones. So there is, they do have access, but it's not as general as one thinks. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on this. That's my worry as to whether we'll be leaving out whole chunks of people who just don't have the basics. Okay. Uh, Michael? I, you know, I think it really has changed, Rita. I mean, I partly learned Indonesian through listening to it in, when I was living in Java, doing my research for a PhD through the Indonesian service to the BBC. Now, you know, I, I miss that shortwave uh, broadcasting and so on. But when I go back to Indonesia now, I find that half the audience are listening on telephones. I mean, I still don't quite know how they do this. But that, that's the world in which we live. And I think saying that there's a tension here between the World Service and, and worldwide in the sense of get, what is in genuine in the international interest. Is it to bring in commercial revenue to offset the, the license fee to a certain extent? Or is it to get British content out there on a global platform? I, I think you know that's an argument that we need to have in the next uh, 18, 24 months, and I think Ian makes very, very forceful points, and uh, uh, I, for one, value them. Peter, do you want to make a, a final word from you as we come to a close? I mean, taking Ian's, Ian's point as a prompt, I certainly think that UK knowledge taken to the world in the way that BBC or British news and British news values has been taken to the to the to the world is a key idea for the. Yeah. BBC's next case for, it, case for its future. Yeah. And that relates to something which I think sits above all of this, which is what is the proper global role for the BBC and what's the concept that we use. And I think in the BBC mindset, it's still fundamentally a UK organisation with a global add-on. Mm. Truly global, successful players mm. don't, you know, American global organisations think of themselves as global organisations that happen to have the United States as their primary market. I think the BBC is a global organisation which, of course, has the UK as its most important market. And once you start thinking on that basis, mm. lots of things like Ian's suggestion and how the BBC deals with, with culture, how it has a, a shared international set of new, news values, quite a lot of things follow from that. But if the BBC is serious about its global role being a key element of the case for its next future, then thinking through what a genuinely global role means in the digital age will be absolutely key. Well, thank you very much indeed. We've moved during the afternoon from trying to capture the the current uh, cultural value of the BBC to some, some bigger issues and some important issues for Charter Review. So would you like to say thank you very much to the panel?